Where's my script? Hello, and welcome to the American Empire Podcast, Episode 2, From Vainglory to Tragedy. When we left Columbus last week, we found him overly excited. As per his agreement with the Spanish monarchs, if he had discovered islands and mainlands, he would receive the title Viceroy and Governor. Isabella and Ferdinand had very low expectations. Granting him such a title was low risk. Chances were that he would sail into the Atlantic, never to be seen again. Oh boy, were they wrong. Co-commander Martin Alonso was dead. Columbus entered Spain and basked in the fame all alone, probably as he wished. Columbus's return to Spain came with tall tales. He had claimed he had discovered a new route to Asia, and with it all the riches that came from there. He was itching to return. Columbus declared that the, quote, natives were the slaves which were now subjects to the Spanish crown, end quote. He soon gained a commission to explore the Americas once more, in 1493. This time with 17 ships and enough resources and people to establish a permanent colony. The coming story, then, is of how the Spanish began to conquer the Americas and how this process mirrored the North American experience too. How there was pushback from some figures who were convinced that what they were doing was abhorrent, and how entrenched powers looked to the past to justify their present actions. The final outcome of which was a policy of genocide in Hispaniola, modern-day Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Only Columbus would be convinced that they were in Asia. Others knew they were somewhere else, somewhere entirely new. For others, this was their home, and men of pale complexion were the outsiders. So let's begin. Where to begin? Ah, a form of romanticism informed Columbus's judgment. The reconquest of Spain led him to rediscover antiquity. The Islamic Moors, who had been occupying the Iberian Peninsula since the age of Charlemagne the Great, kept extensive historical records, translating ancient documents into Arabic and expanding upon their work. A cult of the ancients, or of antiquity, developed in Europe. Atrocities would be committed with the rationales found in the work of Aristotle, or by making reference to biblical figures and events. There is no minimizing the intensity of these stories, and how they were felt by Europeans. They often escape, and a discourse for new opportunities. So let's just earmark that. The absence of knowledge created fantasies not just for Columbus, but also for his crew. These men were the dregs of Spanish society. As Fernando Benitez put it, all they wanted was gold. Gold, gold, gold. Always gold and treasure. An El Dorado. Upon Columbus's return to Hispaniola in 1493, where there were rivers of gold, as he elaborated to the Spanish monarchs, he found the fortress of Navidad abandoned. The colonists overstayed their welcome. It is thought that they kidnapped, stole, and killed some Taino Indians in search of more gold. 
and that this provoked reprisals, blood for blood. It is also believed that the men fought amongst themselves, over loot and slaves. It remains unknown precisely what happened. Speculation lingers, even as to the location of the fortress itself. Eventually, a permanent colony was established, called Santo Domingo. This time it would not implode, and one day it would become the capital of the Dominican Republic. Before the Spanish arrived on the island, there were five kingdoms. Columbus and the Spanish played them off each other, using old rivalries to their advantage. Columbus wrote of one king called, now please forgive me, Wakinganagari, and of his warm friendship that they fostered. He wrote, quote, He prided himself in calling me and having me as a brother. End quote. Columbus explored the region two more times after 1493, every time stretching his luck at the expense of the locals. His capacity to govern was poor. He is considered sometimes a tyrant because of the large doses of violence he utilized. Indeed, he set the precedents in the Americas. During this period, England was practicing their own form of colonial rule in Scotland and Ireland, with two different approaches and two very different outcomes. They would gain lessons from this experience and would utilize them accordingly in America, India, and future penal colonies. They built from what they knew, as did the Spaniards at the start of their colonial rule. Hispaniola was to be governed in a quasi-feudal mode. The first colonies in the Americas were organized by a system of commissions, or encomiendas, where a Spanish nobleman was granted lordship over a certain area. They were practically recreating the lord-serf social relation, a society which resembled Spain. Within each encomienda, the Spanish laws were obliged to Christianize and civilize the Indians. The Spanish were not allowed to disappoint the Pope. Predictably, however, this was not a benevolent process. The Spanish had a lust for gold, and they would do their utmost to get their hands on it. Columbus, after all, promised Isabella and Ferdinand that the gold from Hispaniola would fund a Spanish holy war to take Jerusalem. Of course, then, the rampant exploitation of the Taino Indians followed. It is at this point that I think it is important to introduce Bartolomé de las Casas. He was a missionary and a historian. He observed how the Spanish treated the indigenous population. He was initially complacent about the actions of the Spaniards, but soon he became one of the first people to call for the abolition of slavery, and he is considered by some the founder of human rights. His account of the early colonial rule in the Americas is the main source many use to understand what happened in Hispaniola. Las Casas reported how the Indians were treated in these encomiendas scattered throughout the Caribbean, stating, Thus, husband and wives were together only once every eight or ten months, and when they met, they were so exhausted and depressed on both sides that they ceased to procreate. As for the newly born, they died early because their mothers, overworked and famished, had no milk to nurse them. And for this reason, while I was in Cuba, 7,000 children 
died in three months. Some mothers even drowned their babies from sheer desperation. In this way, hundreds died in the mines, wives died at work, children died from the lack of milk. In short time, this land, which was so great, so powerful and fertile, was depopulated. My eyes have seen these acts, so foreign to human nature, and now I tremble as I write. He later proceeds. There were 60,000 people living on this island of Hispaniola, including Indians. So, that from 1494 to 1508, over 3 million had perished from war, slavery, and the mines. Who in the future will believe this? I myself, writing as a knowledgeable witness, can hardly believe it. These stats may be over-exaggerated, it is no less an expression of early European encounters in the New World. It ultimately led to tragedy. Others were also sympathetic. Francisco de Vitoria, don't worry, you don't have to remember his name, believed them to be civilized, as they were, admiring, quote, their properly organized cities, recognizable forms of marriage, magistrates, rules, laws, industry, commerce, and a form of religion, end quote, but omitted their agricultural practices, stating they lacked a diligent system of agriculture. Others were not so sympathetic to the plight of the Tenu Indians. Here, the cult of antiquity kicked in, with Palacio Rubios, another name you don't have to remember, arguing that the Indians made for natural slaves in concert with Aristotle's arguments about slavery in his book, Politics. And there's that word, natural. Earmark that word too. It is used again and again to justify colonial rule. But what made them natural for Aristotle was their inability to share in quote-unquote reason. The people who had this inability, in Aristotle's view, were non-Greek, barbarians, and this was precisely what the Spanish would call the Indians. When word reached the Spanish monarchs about atrocities being carried out in Hispaniola, an investigation was ordered. One investigator was fond of Aristotle's work, and wrote, where it appears that through barbarity and wicked disposition, the people of the Antilles, the Taino Indians, may and should be governed as slaves. Through this reasoning, the investigator concluded that the Indians qualified for slavery, and the system of encomiendas was a benefit to the Indians. For, quote, these Indians, who it is said, are talking like animals, end quote. If he didn't pick it up from that quote, he never actually met them. Complete and utter dehumanization was the pretext Europeans wanted, or needed, to carry out the conquest of the Americas. Sources far and wide would be used to justify their actions. Day by day, the local population was being displaced by the encroaching Spaniards. Columbus's supposed friend, King Guacanagari, was killed fleeing the Christians, as Las Casas noted. Queen Isabella decreed that should they disobey the crown, they need to be taken away from their homes and learn the ways of Catholicism, and that their possessions and property is forfeited. 
the implications of this decree are profound. The envelopment of Hispaniola and the displacement of the local population, either through slavery or through coerced conversion in missionaries, had a near genocidal effect. European disease just accelerated the process of control and coercion. By 1513, King Ferdinand's opinion became murderous when he said, quote, These Indians of the Caripana have deserved death a thousand times because they are very bad people and who have at other times killed many Christians. And I do not say make slaves of them according to their evil breed, but even to order them burnt to the very last, young and old, so no memory remains of such people. By 1502, the Indian slave labor had already yielded 22,750 grams of gold for the Spanish, and thus flooding the European market and inflating the cost of goods and services. When Las Casas wrote of a Spaniard priest's behavior towards the Indians, it was believed that he was, quote, incidentally killing his natives in the process of mining, end quote. Incidentally is put in it lightly. Not all colonists were out for gold. Some were there to convert the Indians to Christianity, and some were gradually appalled by what they saw there. Dominican friars used their pulpits to denounce, quote, the cruelty and tyranny you practice on these innocent natives, end quote. Events had deteriorated in Hispaniola. Laws were passed to allow Spanish officials to round up Indians and to concentrate them near the colonies, and in the process their homes were to be destroyed so that they had nowhere to return to and thus couldn't avoid the Christians. Religious arguments for the preservation of their lives followed. Las Casas' moral crisis reached a tipping point upon reading a biblical passage which stated, The bread of the needy is their life. He that defrauded him thereof is a man of blood. He that taketh away his neighbor's living slayeth him. So, like, basically, don't steal from the poor. Taking from the poor is bad. And if you take from the poor, you ought to be slayeth or punished. Anyway. Much like quoting Aristotle's politics, opponents of Las Casas would also quote from the Bible in order to maintain the status quo. So, as in the Bible, quote, When the people of Jericho did not give up their land, Joshua surrounded them and killed them, all except one woman who had protected his spies. So too, the Spanish will believe they have the right to do what they want with the Indians because they were acting as Joshua did on behalf of God. In the end, Columbus's voyages were a cataclysmic event for the Taino Indians and for the Native American population at large. To quote Ben Kiernan, in modern legal terms, the conquistadors demonstrated criminal intent, even though in many cases their motive was theft rather than murder. By 1514, there were 32,000 Indians remaining in Hispaniola, 90% had died since 1492, that year Columbus sailed the ocean loop. So many had died by 1501 that King Ferdinand approved the first shipment of slaves 
to the West Indies, thus introducing to the Americas the African slave trade. So, I will stop here. Although we are leaving the story of Hispaniola for now, we will return to it, for it is the home of the buccaneers. Pirates were deeply involved in this history of the United States. They contributed to the economic development of the North American colonies. Next episode, we turn our attention to England, the struggle against popery and its new forms found in Anglicanism, the reinventing of the spiritual realm, loosening the social relations of the ternary state, that is, a state bound by the aristocracy, the clergy, and the serfs. We will learn about internal struggles of power within England, then Britain, formerly by 1707, which led to periodic expansions and mass migrations. Mm-hmm.